1: PUT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PUTcast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis
0: hi everybody welcome to the podcast this is monique whitney i am the executive director of pharmacists united for truth and transparency and also the host of the podcast which is sponsored by our very good friends data scan pharmacy software and i just want to take a moment to say hi to kevin and sarah and everybody over there because they are amazing uh today we are talking about pharmacy law and I am so excited to have the two people who are our panels today join us on the podcast. Mark Bozen and Alison Snow, are attorneys here in my hometown of Phoenix, Arizona. Mark and Allison are the principals of Bozen and Snow Law Firm. And Mark is actually also a pharmacist and has a pharmacy background and a politics background, which Mark, I'm gonna ask you about. And then his partner, Allison. Who is also, I think, very familiar with pharmacy. Allison, am I right? You at one point were working with a pharmacy?
1: Yes. Uh for approximately three years, uh, Mark and I, I was general counsel and chief compliance officer for a national mail order pharmacy.
0: Yes, that so. that is what I thought. That because because we've had the opportunity now a few times to get together and really talk about everything that's been going on in the industry. So really, without further ado, I just want to take a moment, actually, to let you say hello to everybody who's listening to the podcast. Thanks for
1: having us, first of all. Uh, We appreciate it uh, and happy to be here. So Mark and I have, I think, unique backgrounds on our own. Mark has been a pharmacist for almost 30 years and an attorney for, for about 10. He and I have both practiced law for approximately 10 years. And, and out of pharmacy school, Mark had a kind of a, a unique path, uh, worked for Senator McCain on, on Capitol Hill, and then um, subsequently brought his family uh, back to Arizona. He is a pharmacy graduate of the University of Arizona and worked at what would become a Vela specialty pharmacy as as a compounding pharmacist, and he had um, a compliance role there as well. My background was actually prior to law school was in healthcare sales. Uh, So I've always enjoyed the sales and marketing aspect of healthcare. I've sold both uh, orthopedic implant products um, and, and been in the OR, helping you know helping the surgeons and the surgical technicians with their instrumentation. Um, and then I've also sold um, healthcare services um, such as home healthcare um, and, and things in the long-term care realm. So I like the the sales and marketing piece of finding. The target client, finding out where those people are, how to educate people about your product or your service, and and then finding the business. and And I think that's what mar- makes Mark and I uh, a unique combination. Is that you know he's got this really you know practical clinical background. I like the marketing. I like you know working on our client experiences and and making that better. But I'll fast forward. Mark and I met in law school, and everyone in our program was a working professional. Um, I was working in healthcare sales, and I knew Mark was a pharmacist. And um, throughout law school, I asked Mark, I think this is a funny story, I asked Mark, well, what are you going to do after law school? And he said, I'm going to do pharmacy law. And I kind of chuckled, and I was like, that's adorable. That's not even a thing. Like, uh, that is... So niche and so specific that can't possibly be be a real thing, and and come to find out it is a very real thing um, and uh, one of one of the most uh, highly regulated industries in the United States. So, I gravitated towards Mark in law school um, because I thought his background was fascinating, and then working in healthcare myself, um, I started to see the opportunity, post-law school, uh, for us to, to have a firm uh, utilizing our unique backgrounds um, in a way that would help clients uh, that, that are healthcare providers and clients that are operating businesses. And so I think that's one unique thing about us is that we operate a business, um, we've operated healthcare businesses, and we, we understand the challenges that our clients have operating those businesses.
2: I appreciate that, Allison. I, I don't have anything to add. I, it, it's often better when someone introduces you. But I gravitated uh, to Allison because one of the things I enjoy doing is I liked being a clinician. And I, I like being a legal clinician, too, a practitioner. And I think one of the things our firm does very well is we're not just people that provide legal advice of, ah, if you stray into this area, there's some risk there. But they, but they don't help you with the, okay, so what should I do? We, I, I, I think the unique background Allison and I bring is, is she she's really, really good at operating businesses. And I'm really, really good at helping with the individual client-facing decisions, whether it be a patient standing in front of you in the pharmacy or in the hospital, or or a legal client, we, we get to the, well, what what would you do? And I think because of our background, we're not afraid to say, well, this is what we would do. And this is hard. This is why lawyers are sometimes um, not the most favorite people in the world is, is we can never get you to that zero risk, particularly in healthcare. Everything is either low risk, medium risk, or high risk. And it's all a judgment call. And so clients say, well, how do I get to operating my facility, operating my business, and even the manufacturers? How do I sell a drug? How do I offer a copay reimbursement that I'm never going to get in trouble with? We say, well, we can't help you with the you'll never get in trouble. We can't make that guarantee. And in fact, there's a code of ethics that says we can't. But, but what we do pride ourselves on is here's some practical advice, and we can get you an answer that we will stand behind and we will fight to the death to defend. I say that a lot, is I would go this way, and I would be comfortable if I was in your shoes defending myself, which means that we will be particularly effective in defending you should someone come ask questions and and deal with it. And one of the things that uh, Allison talked about was, I like that story, too, about how we were in law school, and she's like, ah, are you sure you can make money being a pharmacy lawyer? And I decided, actually, I'd, I'd always kind of thought about going to law school, and And the day I decided to go to law school was when the ATF visited Avella. And and we didn't sell tobacco or alcohol, let alone firearms or bomb-making equipment. But the ATF thought we might be in the bomb-making business, particularly the uh, weapons of mass destruction when we bought a kilo of of nitrogen mustard to help with some of our compounding for uh, our cancer patients who were coming out of Mayo. And and I had to teach a bomb-making expert that it was impossible for us to weaponize the nitrogen mustard in our lab and that we weren't a, a double top secret front for the, uh, the Saddam Hussein regime. And I'm like, I gotta go to law school because there is a lot of help that the pharmacy providers need. If, if the ATF is bebopping on in here, we're for no, no apparent reason other than a chemical we bought from, uh, from, a, from a chemical manufacturer.
0: That's, uh, that's fascinating. I actually, I really, I had to laugh when Allison said, you know, pharmacy law, how adorable. (laughs) I remember when I was first, even just learning about this industry, when I was first working with putt and there were a lot of things that I was like, that's not a thing. And then, you know, you go along and you discover, no, that's, that's a thing. And it's an unfortunate thing I imagine. And I'm sure we're going to get into this in more detail, but I imagine that, as much as you were like the ATF or even the DEA or even you know i don't know the Arizona Board of Pharmacy or or any board of pharmacy i'm sure you must surely have had some idea that the real evil giant that you'd end up taking on would be in large part pharmacy benefit managers i mean we have caremark uh, headquartered here in our city but there's also the other two, and then the other ones behind them, did you have any inkling that your future would be so linked to PBMs? I know it's not the only thing you do, but at the time when you were doing law, were PBMs on your mind at all?
1: Absolutely, so I remember after law school, Mark and I went went our separate ways for, for a little while. He he went to Corals and Brady, Um, And I actually went and worked at my brother's law firm here in town. I could tell pretty quickly that that was really not where my passion was going to be. And so Mark and I, we reconnected and, and talked about a firm. And I recall specifically where I was driving on the freeway in Phoenix when Mark started talking to me about pharmacy benefit managers and just thinking, that's insane. Um, and I've had this experience, though, a few times, you know, where obviously the first time when Mark taught me about PBMs, and then as we've, as we've hired uh, staff here at the firm, um, one of our senior attorneys, Michael Rain, who handles many of the PBM matters now and, and does an excellent job. But I remember when he started at the firm and we, we started turning over some of these matters to him. He's a former Arizona attorney general. And we were talking about these matters, which are essentially contract disputes and, and, and some of the audits and finding the uh, fighting the audit findings. And I remember Michael saying that just can't be right. They can't do that. And again, we had the, well, you're adorable moment. You know, yes, yes, they can. And, you know, so we we have a lot of those moments. But yeah, to answer your question, I mean, Mark and I knew really from the beginning of the founding of our firm and then, you know, subsequently going in-house for an interim period of time running a pharmacy, we knew that we wanted that to be, you know, kind of one of our legacies of helping pharmacies fight PBMs and and really working from many different angles, from the legal angle, helping clients with the compliance angle, and you know, helping them uh, be compliant before the audit happens instead of just the reactive you know, responding, um, and then also the political advocacy route. So we absolutely knew, you know, from day one that we wanted that to be really um, one of the cornerstones of our firm.
2: Yeah, I I tell clients all the time that I, I will be very happy if the legacy of this firm is they did something to, at a minimum level, the playing field, and allow everyone to play fairly and take care of patients or completely destroy the PBM industry. Either one of those would be acceptable, the latter being my preference, but even if we, even if we just accomplished a level playing field and and got to a world where it, it goes back to the beginning, I, I'm a fan of history and, and, and what the PBMs have become is a little sad. You, you, Monique, you talked about it. Prescription card services, which would eventually become CVS Caremark, has always been in our backyard here in Phoenix. They own a beautiful piece of property in North Scottsdale. And the reason why they have so much land is there was nothing out there at the time it started some 50 years ago. And and the Polito family and, and those folks that started it, it was great. It was, we're, we're going to put a computer system in our building that's going to connect all the pharmacies with the health plans. And pharmacies, you're going to get paid faster. And there weren't any other shenanigans. It was, you're dispensing medications, patients don't always have the money to pay you first, you're waiting for the forms to get mailed in and you're filling them out wrong and you're taking forever to get paid for your services. Um, we're gonna make it easier for you. And if that's all it was and that's all it ever was, it, w- it would have been amazing. But this monster was created as it kept growing and changing hands. and. And it's not fair. And Allison's story about Michael Rain, the the litigator we have, he says, but the contract doesn't allow them to do this. Certainly, certainly they they can't. i like, but but they will, and they won't they won't care. And we can take them to arbitration, but they know most of our clients won't be able to afford it. And and when Allison and I talked about building the firm, there. We had experience with other firms. There there are just there are two types of firms that we experienced as clients, as pharmacy as a pharmacy provider that was fighting the PBMs. There was a firm that was just overwhelmed and busy and sort of high volume, high volume and, and sometimes they won and sometimes they lost and, and it was really, really hard to get special attention. And then there were the really, really expensive firms that we were dropping $50,000 a month and still losing. They were doing excellent work, but we were still losing. It was only just sort of delaying the debt uh, a little bit, if you will, and, uh, and extending us just a few more months. But, but from time to time, we still lost. And we wanted to be a different kind of firm. We wanted one that, that was affordable and, and yet was very, very effective. And, and we built that, and we're very proud of that, and we're growing that.
0: I'm so glad that you kind of got into some of the things that you were just talking about with the PBMs, because one of the things that we talked about, the three of us, when we had lunch a few weeks ago, was we were talking about what has been happening in the industry. And you mentioned arbitration, you mentioned some of the contracts. Um, there's a lot that goes on in pharmacy law. I mean, no in one regard, the law is the law, right? A contract is a contract or, you know, a, a, an organization, which is a regulatory organization has its rules and entities that are subject to those rules need to follow those rules. And if they don't, you know, there might be a dispute and you could bring an attorney in, but really what you do is pretty specific. And and here at PET, we, we have been Privilege to to interact with and know some really great attorneys in the pharmacy space. I mean, there's Mark Cougar. I know you guys know him from Jacobs Law Group. He's got the punch lawsuit and has been going up against Optum. And they're terrible arbitration contracts. Um, we have a good friend, Donaldson Caffrey, He's the attorney for the Louisiana Independent Pharmacies Association. And he's, you know, constantly uh, working at the state level with uh, all of those guys, there's 300 pharmacies in that particular association. And and, and Miguel Rodriguez, a very good friend to, to all of us and uh, American pharmacies, you know, he's been um, a wonderful resource into not just the contracts or, you know, what's happening at the state level, but also just like at the level of of the law and what some of these things, what these lawsuits that keep coming down mean, right? And the reason I bring those guys up is that they're as amazing and wonderful as they are. They don't actually have exactly the background you guys have. They, you know, n- none of them are, are practicing pharmacists or were. So you guys, you have a unique perspective, Allison, with your, with your perspective and your background in sales and, and healthcare sales, Mark, with your perspective in pharmacy, I, I think it would be worth just taking a moment to talk about why pharmacy law is not your everyday law. Why, when, pharmacies or groups that are involved in the pharmacy space come up against an issue, you know, they, they need to really think about who they choose to work with. Right. Cause you, this isn't like, you know, I know a guy, it's not, you are problems in this industry aren't exactly like I know a guy, let me help, you know, talk to my cousin Vinny or something like that. Right. It's they're kind of trickier, aren't they?
2: They are trickier. I'll, I'll tell a quick anecdote. And it, it happened while I was in law school I was at apothecary shops, which would later become Avella specialty pharmacies. And we didn't have an in-house lawyer. we We, we had external counsel that helped us frequently, and they were amazing. Um, but we were big enough that we needed an in-house lawyer. And I think one of the issues that we struggled with was trying to select an attorney. and and I, because I was in law school, I had a sense of, how specialized the type of attorney we needed was going to have to be. But when we interviewed a number of candidates, the team was looking for who they thought was the best lawyer. And people who who, who don't practice law look at things that, that may be a little bit tangential. Where did you go to law school? How many years of experience do you have practicing law? And what they didn't pay attention to and what the team didn't pay attention to was well, where was that experience? And and what you'll find is law is just like healthcare in that you don't want a neurosurgeon working on your Achilles tendon. I mean, sure, the neurosurgeon's licensed to do that. It's within the scope of their practice. They're really, really good surgeons and how hard can an Achilles tendon be compared to brain surgery? But any competent neurosurgeon is going to say, "No, I don't do feet." They're complicated and vice versa. The orthopedic surgeon isn't going to try to do neurosurgery, even though it's within the scope of their practice, it wouldn't be illegal for them to do that. Um, And so what you're looking for is someone with the right educational background, but someone also with the right sort of practical background and specialization. Law is exactly the same. You don't want me doing your divorce, your family law. That is an area of law that is complicated and frankly frustrates me. Uh, I, I don't understand it. I don't think there are enough Objective things that the scientist in me goes, but but you can't just put your finger in the air and decide. And sometimes family law is a little bit like that. And there's a there there aren't as many rules. Um, what attracted me to pharmacy law is that it has some more specific rules, but it has a lot. There's an anecdote. We're not sure that this is true, but we've turned it into a wives' tale of sorts. When I was at Quarles and Brady, my mentor Roger Morris, who's a fantastic pharmacist attorney, um, had an intern do just a uh, a project as to how how much regulation does pharmacy have? How many statutes do they have? And the intern did a little research and found, you know, did a word count on the number of statutes and the number of rules any given pharmacy has to think about on any given day and compared that with some other well-regulated industries. And according to the intern's research, There's only one other profession that is, or industry, that is more highly regulated than pharmacy, and that's the nuclear power industry. They have more words and more pages of things they have to pay attention to. And frankly, that didn't surprise us. Really? Um, (laughs) Yeah. But the the anecdote that I'm telling you, so we selected an attorney who had been an attorney for 25 years. Um, She negotiated some very, very significant Department of Defense deals in foreign countries, The law she was responsible for could not be more complicated. It married military law, trade secrets, foreign corruption, and bribery. She was responsible for a company that sold jet engines to foreign countries, mostly for for military-grade planes. And she was a fantastic writer. And, And I remember saying, but she may be the best lawyer in the world when it comes to her history of 25 years, but I don't know how any of that translates to what we do here. And and fast forward, we were working on a program with with a device manufacturer and a drug manufacturer. And the drug manufacturer had a medication that absolutely positively had to be taken precisely at the same time every day or it wasn't going to be very effective and it was really expensive, stupid expensive. And there was a medical device company over here that said, we've got this new technology called a glow cap. It's a cap that goes on your bottle. And it's programmed. It has a cellular phone chip in it. It's got a little mini computer in it. And it knows when, when you've taken the cap off and on. And it's got a light on it. And when it's time to take your medicine, it'll glow. That's where the name comes from. And if you don't respond to the glow, it'll, it'll sound an alarm. And if you don't respond to the alarm, it will call someone that you've asked it to call to remind you, it might call your phone first, it might call your your spouse or your son or your daughter or even your doctor, like, hey, somebody gets this person to take their medication. And then, this is my favorite part as a community pharmacist, it would know, hey, you only have like a four or five day supply left. Somebody should call the pharmacy and order it so it's not an emergency, because there's no way the pharmacy is going to stock this really expensive medicine. They're going to order it one at a time. So it would call the pharmacy automatically in the IVR and order, order its own refills. Or it also knew if there were no refills left, it would call the doctor and ask for a order. It was fantastic technology. And the drug manufacturer says, we want this. We want every single one of our patients to get this because we think it's going to be amazing, and we'll pay for it. And just whenever a doctor writes a prescription for our drug, send it out. And they worked for almost a year on the marketing materials, the pieces, all of it. And I remember very specifically, I was coming back from a family vacation, and they were blowing up my phone. And we stopped at the Hoover Dam, and I took a call at the Hoover Dam. And they said, hey, general counsel's mad at you because you're not looking at your emails. We need you to approve the marketing piece, the postcard we're going to send with every prescription that talks about this free glow cap. And I said, all right, I pulled it up on my phone, and I said, this is amazing. One question for general counsel. Ask her how she figured out how to get around the beneficiary inducement statute. These caps cost $200, and I'm gonna give these away to people, and I'm gonna build a government plan for their health care. I can't give them a $200 gift. But I was so excited that our general counsel had figured it out, and all hell broke loose. The manufacturer lawyers didn't pick up on it. Our jet engine lawyer didn't pick up on it. No one picked up on it. And, you know, I wasn't even licensed yet, but but my point is, it is so complicated. Even giving stuff away in an effort to help people stay healthy can be considered a criminal activity. And healthcare law is hard. When we recruit people, Allison gives me a hard time heard lawyers. I'm like, look, I don't want this really talented lawyer to be scared about how difficult our job is, so I'll say, we'll teach you. And Allison says, you sound like Billy Bean in the movie Moneyball talking to Scott Hatterberg about how easy first base is. It's not very easy. And stop telling our new candidates that it's easy. We will teach them, but they need to know that it's going to be difficult no matter what area you come from, including some healthcare law, what we do at this firm is very, very different and needs to be very, very precise. And you need to know what you don't know. And that's the hardest part. Being a good healthcare lawyer is recognizing that I need to dig deeper. One of the things I like to tell the new associates is, if you feel like your answer is easy, you probably didn't do enough research. You know, giving away the glow cap that's a fantastic idea, love it, that's gonna be good for patients. Allison will tell the story all the time, I say it all the time, particularly go back to PBMs. Pharmacists always call us and say, they're gonna terminate me from the network, but nothing that I did was illegal. And we're like, they can do both. Both can be true at the same time. I agree with you, nothing you did was illegal, but it wasn't allowed in your contract. And your contract, unfortunately, gets to change as often as they want by virtue of just the facts that came in that someone may or may not have filed or told you about that changed the rules overnight. Um, some of that is unconscionable. Just notice by facts in 2023, changing the rules just by a fax is ridiculous. And part of that are things that we argue, both in, in informal disputes and informal Litigation disputes. Of yeah, I get that 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 we've agreed in this contract of adherence, this non-negotiable contract that we've agreed to receive faxes on page 32, section 55. But seriously, it, 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 nobody uses fax machines anymore. Um, you know, 1983 called and they'd like their technology back. Is sort yes. of the, the shtick there. But yeah, that's. Hiring an attorney that does this for a living, lives it, and, and important, most more importantly, hiring attorneys like Alice and I that, that have been in your shoes relatively recently. There are lots of pharmacist attorneys out there, and I call them all dear friends and colleagues. I, I probably know almost all of them, but many of them went to pharmacy school and then went to law school and never really practiced, and, and they still call us. And, and we, we do free legal advice for each other all the time. Mark, how does this work in real life? Can you help me so that I can advise my client? And we're happy to do that because I will ask them something I don't know tomorrow. And so we will, we will help each other out frequently. It's a very, very nice community that is here. But those are the people that I think are most valuable to your business. Uh, the business attorneys, I get frustrated. We have a client who, who hired a business attorney, or even more importantly, criminal attorneys, who just didn't know what they didn't know. And now we've got a we've got a new problem that arose because the criminal attorney dealt with your DUI, but didn't know about 323208 that says you should have reported your DUI to the board. And had you done it on the night you got arrested. Nothing bad would happen to you. But because you missed that report, now something bad is going to happen. And your criminal attorney had no reason to believe, because we live in America, you're innocent until proven guilty, that you have to tell anybody until you're convicted, except if you're a licensed health care provider in a state like Arizona. And so, you know, the business lawyers do really, really good jobs with contracts, except for when they write a contract to give away free glow caps. Like, ah, you missed it. We spend. I spend at least an hour every morning reading new regulations, new laws, and new guidance documents that literally came out the day before just to keep up. And I, I, we have the luxury of doing that because all of our clients need that advice. But the criminal lawyers, the business lawyers, the other lawyers that are out there do fantastic work. But they, when they layer in healthcare, it just gets more complicated.
0: And that's exactly why I wanted us to talk about this today because they aren't the same. And we've had the opportunity to talk to a number of pharmacy owners and pharmacists over the years who've been involved in different types of lawsuits. It, it really does sort of make you question, like, everything you think you know about the U.S. and about our laws and what's fair and free market and competition. I mean, just, you know, a couple of hours working around what we work around will totally make you wonder, like, what happened to all that because it just isn't true for healthcare like it is in other industries. And uh, you you know, we were talking, three of us were talking about the Bohannans in Tennessee that got buried under paperwork because you know, the manufacturer across the street decided they wanted to open their own pharmacy for their employees, even though the employees, you know, didn't want that and wanted to be able to continue going to the pharmacy literally across the street. You know, that's just one example or the arbitration clause that says that you have to have three arbiters. They, I think I've got that phrase right. They have to have ten years of experience each. You have to travel to California, you know, and and so one one farmer's and you have to do this by yourself. And you, you have to pay for those. to yeah. pay for those, right? It's 250000
1: dollars an hour each, and sometimes yep. put up a bond. Yeah,
0: it, it's it's insane. Yeah. Like, you start looking at this, and you're like, wow. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that the worst, most hardened criminals never had to deal with this kind of, you know, regulatory red tape or, or legal red tape just to be able to, you know, get them side of the story told. So I think it's, it's worth having this conversation. And I appreciate you guys for, for you know, talking us through some of that. I want to shift for a moment too, because I want to talk about something else, Mark, specifically because of your political background, you and I know each other from Work here in Arizona with the Arizona Independent Pharmacy Coalition, and, and many of the things that have gone on in our, you know, famously anti-regulatory state, and we are anti-regulation state, and we've been successful as some of that work. But I, I you know, in my experience, uh, you have brought uh, a level of, you know, advice and wisdom to pharmacists here. And I wanted to talk with you about that as well, maybe share a little bit about how you got involved in politics. You worked for Senator McCain. What does it mean for our industry? Why should we be investing in our advocacy, even if we feel like, oh my God, I can barely keep my doors open and keep payroll going? Like, Why is this important? Why does this matter?
2: I think it's precisely because you are struggling to keep your doors open and meet payroll that, that you need to be involved. Allison and I talk about it a lot, and I think we have a blog on it on our website, if not more than one, about why investing in advocacy is your best long-term legal strategy. And that is because um, investment in political advocacy, whether it's supporting groups like yours or the Independent Pharmacy Coalition or your state association or your national associations, or hiring your own lobbyists and all of the above, uh, which is what, which is what uh, organizations that I've worked for have always done. We supported, we wrote as many checks as we could to all of the the coalitions and associations that represented our interests. Plus we had our own lobbyist on on staff just because we, we wanted to go faster sometimes. And that was a monthly fee that was budgeted, was always the same. And at the end of the day, wasn't that expensive. It was, um, at a big organization like Apothecary Shops, we, we spend $5,000 a month. Um, if you're a smaller organization and you have less things on your to-do list, you can get away with much less money. But that money needs to be budgeted in. And, th- and the reason why we say that's your best long-term legal strategy is that if you're spending between $1,000 and $5,000 a month, that's you know between twelve and $60,000 a year to make sure that the laws are are helping you run your business and, and making it impermissible for things like transaction fees to happen or making sure that the PBM audit process is fair and that there is uh, objective things you can do um, to make sure you get to, to keep your money. And why that's less expensive than legal fees is if you come to me and you need me to arbitrate you need us to arbitrate, we're going to ask you for an initial upfront fee of $50,000 just to get you started. And you're probably going to end up spending between $100,000 and $250,000 to get through arbitration. The $50,000 to get you started is to pay, to start paying for those three arbiters that are going to charge $600 an hour. And that's completely on us. It's going to help us pay the mandatory bond that you have to post with the arbiters to, to make sure that, that they've got enough money to take this case through. And then you've got to pay the legal fees. You've got to help us. you got to, pre- we're preparing just like we're taking you to court, same exact process, but it's even more expensive to do arbitration because we're not allowed to admit evidence of previous arbitrations that we've won. So, and one of the reasons why the PBMs pick arbitration is they don't have a body of wins or losses that anybody can readmit. Every case is brand new from the beginning. We can't teach the arbiters. We can't teach the judge, hey, eight million cases before you went our way exactly the same way. Here's all the Here's all of the history and cases. Make sure you read them. We're not allowed to do that. We have to start everything from the beginning. We have to teach all of these things from the beginning. We've got to teach them what a PBM is and what it isn't. We've got to teach them what the state laws are that are applicable. We've got to teach them what the federal laws are that are applicable. And that one thing that you want us to do is going to cost you years and years and years of what you could have spent on political advocacy to make sure you didn't have to be here in the first place. And it baffles me that people don't see that and do that ROI. So You asked me a little bit about how I got into it. I like this story. Uh, It's a little self-deprecating, and I'll admit it. Um, I was not a good pharmacy student. I, I candidly got a little bored by the time we got through it. I thought the coursework was really, really difficult. I worried that I wasn't smart enough to finish. And the one class that I was excited about taking my third year was we got a chance to take an elective. And I'm like, Finally. I'm going to find an elective that is the easiest, most blow-off elective that I can find on this list. And in pharmacy school, they don't have something like history of baseball. They just don't. I could choose from my electives antibiotics or geriatrics or pediatrics or oncology, and those just sounded hard and boring, and I didn't want to do it anymore. And I was down on myself, and I went to go get a sandwich. And there was a flyer in the student union at the University of Arizona, Congressional Internships College Credit Provided. And I remember pulling down that flyer and going, that sounds easy <laughs> and, and slightly interesting. And I'll be honest, I had no idea. You, I couldn't have explained to you the difference between a Democrat and a Republican. But I walked into the dean's office and I said, I want to do this for my elective. Shook his head. And he's like, you know, that's for poli-sci people. I'm like, it doesn't say that. It's just his college credit. And he shook his head, and he asked me why, and, and, and I made up a story. I said, well, I, I understand that this was when President Clinton was president, that Hillary Clinton and Ira Magaziner were going to revolutionize health care. It was the first Obamacare that never happened. And the word pharmacist isn't in this thing, and, and it wasn't. And I said, and I know I'm going to be answering the phone and opening mail and cutting out newspaper articles, which is what I did but I'm gonna gonna hear things and I'm gonna learn things. I'm gonna meet people that are gonna be valuable to me, more valuable than antibiotics. And the dean says, I'm not sure that's true. And I said, well, I'm gonna prove it's true. And he let me do it. And it's funny, people, you know I often tell the story, I apply to everybody, Senator Deconcini, Senator McCain, uh, Jim Colby. Deconcini's office didn't call me. I might be a Democrat to this day, I don't know. But he didn't call, McCain called. And uh, he was such a great mentor and and great person to work for. And I was his first pharmacy student. He's had a couple since then. He was a great American. And got me interested in it, and I learned very, very quickly, this guy who was a fighter pilot, he went to the Naval Academy, probably uh, a, a student like I am. He, I think he, he graduated second to last in his class. But he was second to last in the Naval Academy, which is nothing to shake a stick at. I'm not sure where my class rank was in pharmacy school, but it was probably near his. Um, and so we had something in common. We, we were good citizens, but we weren't necessarily great students, but we, we wanted to, to do good. And, uh, and we had that in, in common. And it, it occurred to me that Spider Pilot, who spent time at the Naval Academy and then went to war for us and spent a significant part of his military career in, in, in prison getting tortured, um, was making decisions about things like, should we regulate vitamins and minerals like drugs? And he was relying exclusively on me, this 22-year-old punk who hadn't graduated pharmacy school yet to tell him. And I'm like, that's scary. And that's why you need to be involved. And lobbyists aren't bad people. They're absolutely necessary to the system because You can't know everything about everything, and that's what we ask our elected officials to do. Everything from buying garbage trucks to regulating PBMs and everything in between, you can't know everything about everything. And you're running a business, and you can't be your own lobbyist, and you can't be there every day. So you need a Monique or a Diane McAllister or or whoever is your lobbyist to help you and to be there and to carry the water for you in a very ethical and noble way.
0: And, really and, 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 and our firm
2: does that. We, we say, hey, look, sometimes our first step is not going to arbitration, but getting the chairman of Ways and Means on the phone to call the CEO of Express Scripts and say, hey, um, help me understand why you don't want this pharmacy in your network, which we've done before. And, uh, and the CEO has never heard of that pharmacy, but sometimes good things happen after that phone call is made.
0: I think what you said was really well said and what I think is especially powerful about how you just described that is I think there's a lot of criticism about our elected officials like you know these bozos who make the laws you know special interest money but really I think it's what the it's it's what makes democracy beautiful because you do have an elected official you know ostensibly they're just like you right they they you're a constituent they are in your district and you have the opportunity, you, the pharmacy owner, you, the everyday person, you have the opportunity to contribute to your elected official by making sure they understand what the issues are that your industry faces, which uh, I think made us be as successful as we have been in Arizona. I think it's why you see some of the states out there uh, that are really you know, doing good work revitalizing their industries by taking a new look at for example, the role that pharmacy benefit managers play in access to affordable health care for patients. And that's largely been because of pharmacists who were willing to advocate. That's certainly what PUT was founded for. Well, initially, I think I, I think it's more fair to say we were founded to get attention on the problem. And then as we began to do that, we started to mobilize and see our members, you know, get interested and start to advocate for themselves. But, you know, having the partnership of people such as you and and Alice and you, you know, there to work with us, to help us understand the laws and what it means. It's like, you can't get that ball across the line without a team. Everybody does something different, but they all do it in service of one thing, which is trying to make a better environment for patients, for providers, for the industry. And in our case now, trying to push out, you know what are really the carpetbaggers who've been there for so long and have figured out how to exploit this system so they can just make as much money as they possibly can. Allison, I always give people a chance as we come to a, the close of our podcast. I always give people a chance to our guests a chance to offer advice to our listeners. And uh, when you look out across, you know what what you've seen in in this industry and and how the players have been using the tools at their hand, PPMs with their contracts or changing the rules of the game or boards of pharmacy who uh, are taking an overactive interest or maybe no interest at all or or any of those things that you see, what what advice would you give somebody as far as how to approach a situation that might require legal assistance, but maybe that person doesn't exactly know where to start?
1: I think it's the really... You know, simplistic to say, you know, get an attorney involved and get an attorney involved early, and, and and that's that's a simplistic answer. I think one of the things that Mark and I pride ourselves on is that we understand that businesses don't have a blank check to just to pay attorneys with, but it's it's important to utilize. A law firm, and to find a partner that understands that you don't have a blank check and also understands to help you um, help you leverage your time. I mean, Mark and I talk about just even just even in our own time, or in our own business, leveraging our time so that we can be more productive. You know, I mean, Mark is a pharmacist attorney. He is he's the most expensive person in this firm. And that's just that's just the truth. I mean that's the fact. His his experience, um, his time is is worth more, you know, my time is, is the second most valuable. So do we open our own mail? No, we do not. Do we do we fill out licensing applications? No, we do not. We have hired support people and we've hired really good, you know, senior attorneys that have their own area of expertise. And so Mark and I are always working on leveraging our time to be the most valuable for our clients. And it's the same way in any business, you know. um, A healthcare business is going to have, you know, IT support, Um, they're gonna have, you know, certain levels of staff that, that are going to do, you know, the appropriate things for their skill level. And that's one of the things that Mark and I pride ourselves on is helping clients manage their legal spend, you know, that, Hey, this is, this is where you need to focus. This is where, you know, the dollars that you do have will be well spent, you know, given that you don't have, you know, there's no money tree. Um, and there's, there's no endless supply of of money to pay, to pay attorneys with just understanding that we have, We have a network of not just other really good attorneys that we can call upon when maybe something is outside of our skill set, but just from our years of operating um, businesses of of vendors and other support, you know, IT services and other, uh, you know, support services that our clients can use. Um, And I think finding firms and consultants that understand. How to help you find the help that you need is really important, and you know the saying, "A pound of what? What is it? A, a penny of prevention is worth a, a pound, pound of something cure." Else, cure.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was actually grasping at that one too. Like I know what she's getting at. That's great. I, I really. The other thing I want to say thank you for is for giving us a, a really good, transparent look at what it is inside of a law firm, why it's structured the way it is. Um, it makes so much sense when you talk about, you know, why do you want to get your attorney involved early? Because the earlier you can start working on that problem and working out what the snarls are that have got this person where they are, really the better because the more that, pro- it's like, like, like in health, right? Like if you can get the little tumor early, it's better than if you wait and it's, you know, now life-threatening, right? Or in this case, it's business-threatening, oh. so.
2: Allison's analogy about license applications led me to, to a thought I had about the PBM issues. When you come to us and ask us for help with licensing applications, we're going to give that to someone without a law degree who is affordable and does a good job filling out the license application. Why in the world do you, as an independent pharmacy owner, do your own PBM audit responses? Let us send, not the lawyers to your pharmacy, we have a a pharmacist on staff here who used to be the national lead auditor for CVS Caremark. We've turned him into a good guy.
1: Yes, and I can't believe we haven't talked about that. Well, and earlier.
2: Yes, um, well,
1: we
2: stole stole him from CVS Caremark, and he's been with our firm for uh, five years, and he has been a godsend. He's, he's a good guy now, he's no longer evil, and we send him to pharmacies for a very affordable price to do the PBM audit response because he knows what he would be looking for if he were reviewing this. And too many times, pharmacists are like, I know how to do this, I, I know where all my stuff is, just let me handle it. And then they get a preliminary audit finding that's, that's $100,000 or more sometimes over a million dollars, because the wrong set of evidence was presented. And the problem is, is you can't just go back. You can't do do do-over. In the appeals process, you need a higher standard of proof, whereas the, the, the best and most successful chance you had was in the initial audit response. Spend a little bit of money having a former auditor do your audit response and sit with the auditor and say, oh, I understand you don't like this, but show me in the provider manual, and he has a copy right there with tabs on it, show me where I'm supposed to do this right now, and he gets them to back down at that time. and You don't end up with a $100,000, 1000000 million appeal that you have to now spend way more time and energy on our firm with. Because we've got to dig deeper and get a higher burden of proof. As a pharmacy owner, or or as the pharmacist, you are the most expensive person there. Stop doing your own audit responses.
0: It's yeah, suicide. that's a revolutionary thought too. Because again, you know, we we have the privilege of talking to so many different pharmacy owners across the country, and there are those who are. I, I always imagine they're probably younger in their ownership career, but it does feel like they've got to do everything and. They are the most expensive person in their own operations. So it doesn't make sense to use their time the way that they do. And kind of jumping back to what you were just saying, I'm really glad you brought up about the auditor that you have from CVS. Thank you for recovering him from the dark side. We are Mm -hmm. going to be getting back together, all of us, here in November for a special webinar, which you guys are our guests for. And we're going to actually be looking at what does a PBM auditor look for and sharing a little bit about that. So I think that's gonna be a very exciting event that we have. And and I'm looking forward to having you both and having Mark and Michael and you know sharing with some of our members because it's such a mystery sometimes and sometimes it does feel like they go into a room and they throw a, you know darts at a dartboard and they're like, oh aha, we're gonna, you know, go after this. And while it's not necessarily Darts on a dartboard. I think Mark, you had said at one point, like you were surprised to find out you were kind of right about some of those. Everything,
2: brackets. everything we think they're doing, they did. And <laughs> and our 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 guy who used to be on the inside goes, yeah, yeah, we did that. Like oh do, it. Yeah. do it,
0: yeah, it. It's going to be an interesting, interesting time. So we didn't want to just do it as a podcast. We actually wanted to bring people together for a live opportunity to talk with someone who used to do this and kind of get to know the audit world through, through his eyes. And then also get to know it from your perspective as well, because you have, we haven't talked about this on the podcast we should, when we get together for that webinar, talk more about this, but you also have a whole specialty area around audits. And this is something that you do in all 50 states. Isn't that right? Did I understand that correctly?
2: We do. Um, it is administrative. We, we also offer sort of a gap analysis. Well, not sort of, we offer a gap analysis. So before the auditor even comes in, it is let us come in and do the mock audit. And the mock audit will be related to all three big PBMs. Caremark is going to look for uniquely different information than Express Scripts is gonna look for, than Optims look for. And because we've responded to literally thousands of audits and appeals we know which pieces of evidence and what kinds of things they like and that they don't like. If you never hire anybody, the one thing you have to do as a pharmacist or a pharmacy technician running your firm is read the provider manuals. Copay coupon cards are going to be the death of you. A little-known fact that I didn't know until a CVS audit 10 years ago or was that CVS doesn't allow all of the manufacturer coupons to be used. The drug has to be FDA approved. It's a drug that is FDA approved, which means you can't use it on a device. You can't use it on a glucose meter or test strips or a 510K medical device like HPR Plus, which is what we got nailed on. And I'm like, sure enough, it's in your provider manual. You said shall not. I had no idea. Now I have to give back tens of thousands of dollars and I have no defense. Congratulations, you threw a curveball by me. It'll never happen again. I now read provider manuals for fun.
0: All it takes is one learning opportunity like that. And yeah, you you learn to read your provider manuals. That's excellent advice, Mark. We are at the end of our podcast. And I just want to take a moment to thank you both for your time. This has been a really insightful conversation. As I mentioned, we are going to have you back on our Putt Live series here in just a few weeks to talk about auditing and and. You know, the, sort of the inside scoop on that, Mark Bozen, Allison Snow. Thank you so much. If people would like to read your blog or contact you, I just want to give you the opportunity to say your website or give people a you know place where they can contact you for more information. So our
1: website is B is in boy, S is in Sam, Law, USA. dot com. And I would also encourage people uh, to find Boson and Snow on LinkedIn. And, and Mark and I personally, we we put all of the blog material um, on LinkedIn. And we've, we found that's an excellent way to communicate and interact with people in the pharmaceutical distribution chain. And um, we've connected with a lot of wonderful people there. And we've reposted your frozen pizzas. Love them. <laughs> it's also
2: on our LinkedIn. And most of your... So, so both and Snow Law is a two furry we We'll repost most of Putt's stuff as well. So,
0: Thank you we, for doing uh, We love your
2: organization. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you. Thank you both very much. And for everyone who's been listening today, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast We love your feedback. Please uh, feel welcome to leave your comments for us at info at truthRx.org. Until next time, this is the PuttCast. We'll see you next month.